Why I Vaccinate, presented by the Franny Strong Foundation and the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. I'm Ann Thomas, and I am here with my co-host, Veronica McNally. And Veronica, an interesting and informative show coming up next. We're going to be talking today about staying ahead of disease, and we have three guests. We have Joe Fakuri, who is a pediatric hospitalist. We have Dr. Farhan Badi, who is a family physician, and Dr. Emily Martin, who is an epidemiologist. We're going to hear about influenza, about COVID update, and also what we need to be thinking about in getting our kids caught up on their vaccines. And we'll get started right after these messages. Welcome to Why I Vaccinate, presented by the Franny Strong Foundation and the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. I'm Ann Thomas, and I am here with my co-host, Veronica McNally. And Veronica, on the first segment of the show, we say hello to Dr. Joe Fukuri. He is a pediatric hospitalist with Bronson Health. Welcome to the show, doctor. Hi, thanks for having me. And we want a COVID update right now. We want to find out from you, Dr. Fakuri, what parents should know about the risks of COVID. So talk a little bit about where we are with regard to COVID-19 and children. Yeah, so that's a great question. So COVID-19 and children are, you know, we're still um, concerned, obviously, that kids can can easily pick up the virus and and have some pretty significant side effects from the virus itself. Um, we still are seeing what's called the multi-inflammatory syndrome in children, or MISC for short, and that's a typically post-COVID um, pretty significant inflammatory syndrome that can cause a lot of inflammation in various parts of the body. Um, we don't really know the risks of kids that can develop that after getting the COVID infection, um, but we do see it um, ranging from pretty mild to, to quite severe um, inflammation throughout the, throughout the body. So we're still, you know, trying to just be vigilant and, and careful um, with our interactions so that we can try and minimize the risks of kids getting sick. And Dr. Joe Fakuri, we do have parents out there that are concerned about the vaccine and having their children take the vaccine and the risks involved with the vaccine. So can you address that? Yeah. So I think it's important to um, re- review sort of what the vaccine is in particular um, in terms of the mRNA component. So I know that a lot of <clears throat> concern revolves around, well, this is a newer technology. And in reality, this has been studied for many, many, many years. Um, it's just the first vaccine that we were able to um, successfully create using this particular technology. And the way that this vaccine works that's different from other live, what we call live vaccines, for example. So live vaccines, which is like the, the measles vaccine, can cause your body to have an immune response that's similar to a natural infection. This particular mRNA component vaccine simply just gives the body instructions or a recipe, if you will, um, to produce one particular part of the virus, which in this case is the spike protein. These are common phrases that we keep hearing. Once your body generates that immune response and kind of um, has that recipe, that MRA, mRNA is actually broken down. It does not stay in the body. It doesn't enter the cell. 
um, like the hub. Um, and so typically your body is just able to then take those instructions and create the response that it needs to when um, you get infected with the virus. And what about some side effects that we have heard with regard to the vaccine, especially the cardio side effects? Yeah. So I'll start by the most common side effects, which most people have experienced um, for those who have taken the vaccine, and that, that is sore arm, redness at the site, um, maybe some fatigue, some fevers, uh, chills, and some body aches. Um, but yes, there has been a lot of conversation about what we call myocarditis and pericarditis. And so those are inflammation um, of different aspects of the heart muscle. And that has been reported in really adolescents and young adults under the age of 30, um, typically following the second dose uh, in the series. Um, however, I'd like to point out that the risk of myocarditis in that particular population is much higher, up to 34 times higher after the COVID infection than it is after the COVID vaccination. Um, it's also important to point out that the post-vaccine myocarditis or the inflammation of the heart that might require hospitalization in, in children or teens is much shorter, typically one to two days and more mild than if you were to get it after the virus. And that <clears throat> average hospital stay is typically about five days and, and could be more severe. Now, Veronica, I know you've got some questions for Dr. Fakuri too. I do. Dr. Fakuri, tell us about the Delta variant. Is the Delta variant um, more serious? Is it causing more infection in kids than its predecessor variants? Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a little bit of a tough question to answer. Um, for a couple of reasons. So viruses naturally often mutate, as, as you guys know, um, especially the longer that they are around in a population. And I think, um, you know, one of the challenging aspects that we have with the Delta variant is that we are, um, we're suspecting that we're seeing a lot more people get infected and sick from the variant specifically. Um, we don't know entirely that all of these um, more infectious cases are the Delta variant if they're not being specifically tested for, um, but that is the suspicion and, and, it, and it does appear to be causing more of a reaction um, in kids, similar to other viruses that we have seen, but it does seem to be pretty, um, pretty contagious compared to some of the other more typical viruses, if you will. And the Pfizer vaccine is currently authorized uh, for use in the children who are 12 to 18. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to us about the new um, potential recommendation for kids? What do we know about a COVID vaccine for kids? Yeah, so as you alluded to, right now, um, Young adults above 18 obviously have, have the option to, to have um, vaccinations from, from all of the available um, options. Right now, kids, as you said, 12 to 18, um, have the ability to be vaccinated with the Pfizer vaccine in particular. Uh, they just recently have filed for emergency use authorization for the age group of 5 to 11. Uh, and as, as we know, as it stands right now, as of today, October 15th, on October 26th, the CDC is going to um, 
the FDA is going to meet and sort of review the data from Pfizer. And then from what we know on November 2nd, currently scheduled, is when the CDC and the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices is going to be meeting to provide the recommendation, which we anticipate to be that children ages 5 to 11 um, can then be vaccinated. In addition, I do know that Pfizer um, remains in the testing process for kids down to age six months. However, right now we don't really have a strong timeline on when kids from age six months to um, five years will be will be uh, eligible for the vaccine. So as a doctor who cares for children, what kind of evidence are you wanting to see um, to demonstrate safety and efficacy in this age group? So, you know, I, I think it's really important to note that all vaccines undergo such rigorous um, testing, rigorous studying, uh, we're very careful in the scientific community to make sure that what we are going to be recommending and providing for anybody of any age is safe. And I think we we live in an age right now where all we kind of do hear about and talk about is COVID, which can sometimes seem daunting. But in reality, I do think that this particular vaccine has had such intense monitoring um, that the duration of the studies and that the amount of people who have already received the vaccine and the follow-up that has happened from those who have received the vaccine has really proven that this is a very safe and effective vaccine to prevent um, very significant and severe infection. And so I think that, you know, focusing on, you know, at the end of the day, we have been, the pediatricians in general have been folks that families have turned to for so many things. You know, we've, you know, families have turned to us for advice on how to get their kid to sleep at night and how to help that little runny stuffy nose in the middle of the night. And, and our input has always been trusted and appreciated by families. And so I, I think that, you know, right now we continue to stand firm in what we believe with the evidence and the science that we see. And we just ask families to continue to trust us for the care for their children um, because we always do have their best interests at heart. Now, you're really active with the Michigan chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics. I want parents to understand what the AAP does and what its role is in this particular process for the, the COVID vaccine. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so the AAP or the American Academy of Pediatrics is has always been a very strong advocate for both pediatricians as well as as, as children and adolescents. Um, and the, the AAP, from a national organization standpoint, has been very proactive at um, encouraging the, the studies and the, the um, review of data in children, because a lot of the initial focus was in vaccinating older adults and middle-aged adults. And um, down to state chapters, these organizations, this organization has, you know, always kept the interests of both the children in the state as well as the pediatricians who practice in Michigan at the forefront. And that is more so meant how do we support families to have access to, to equitable health care in general, 
But then more importantly, how do we make sure that they have access to things like the COVID vaccine? Because this is a little bit of a newer um, uh, rollout, if you will, especially now as we expect that younger kids can soon be able to get it. Dr. Fakuri, what are you seeing with regard to infants and COVID? Are they somewhat protected when they're really, really young? What is the latest research on that? Yeah, so personally, I've seen a variety of of, um, infections related to COVID in infants and then just kind of seeing what the data seems nationally. It does seem to vary. Um, It seems to vary uh, from pretty mild, that doesn't necessarily require any hospitalization, uh, to fairly severe, that might require some hospitalization for some oxygen needs or some other support. Sometimes kids just have a, uh, a lot of time uh, trouble eating when they get infected with COVID, and so sometimes they require the hospital just for that alone. Um, when you compare it to other more commonly known viruses like the flu um, and RSV, uh, which are, are two other ones that we hear a lot about, um, you know, can kind of range in terms of severity. Sure. How do we keep them safe until the vaccine comes out for those little ones? I think it's really important to just remember um, that if your child is sick, Um, or if someone in your family is sick. Minimizing interaction with other folks is very important. Um, And that's just, you know, common courtesy that really was kind of recommended before COVID. Um, And then if you do have a young kid, I think keeping in mind the risks of asymptomatic spread um, is definitely something to consider. And so even though people might not show symptoms, it's important to maybe consider not having your kid, um, your younger child visiting with other people at this stage of the game, unless those visits are are definitely um, very important for for the family's particular uh, situation. But um, routine hand washing is very important. And so even parents taking care of their young kids, it's difficult to always keep up um, with regular hand washing in between tasks, but I think that's another great way to minimize the spread, especially from a parent to a child. Dr. Joe Fakuri, pediatric hospitalist with Bronson Health, thank you so much for this great advice. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. You are listening to Why I Vaccinate. We'll be back right after these messages. listening to Why I Vaccinate. And my name is Ann Thomas. I am here with my co-host, Veronica McNally. And Veronica, this segment, very interesting, something that you are very passionate about, and that is making sure kids in the state of Michigan are vaccinated. And the pandemic has caused some problems with that. So take over from here and you can introduce our guest. Our guest is Dr. Farhan Badi. And uh, we'll let you go from there, Veronica. Dr. Body, you are a physician uh, at Carefree Medical in Lansing, and you are the state lead for the Committee to Protect Healthcare. Thank you for joining us today to talk about this really important topic of catching up our kids on vaccines. What happened with our vaccination rates in the state when the pandemic hit? 
Well, when the pandemic hit, people stopped going to the doctor. People stopped going out in public places. People became afraid of leaving their houses in general. And so that impacted people's access to health care broadly. Adults stopped getting their diabetes treated and children stopped coming in for well-child visits. So uh, as a result, uh, immunization rates uh, fell. In fact, in Michigan, uh, children ages 19 to 36 months have fallen below 70 percent for immunizations, according to our immunization registry here in Michigan called MICR. And so uh, it's really concerning. And we're we're trying to to tell people that although we're not out of the woods yet with the pandemic, it is really important to get your kids caught up on vaccines uh, if they've fallen behind. And that 70% um, rate that we're talking about, what, why is that a significant issue? What is the, the threshold oftentimes for some of these diseases? Well, we know that in order to obtain what's called herd immunity, you need to have 90% approximately or more of the public uh, immunized. And so 70% is not high enough to protect uh, to protect the public broadly against uh, against these diseases. We've seen in Minnesota, measles start to come back, um, and it's because immunization rates have fallen too low. I mean, some of these things are diseases that we've pretty much eradicated, and now they're starting to come back because immunization rates are, are dropping. When I first started learning about um, about these these issues, right, the importance of having a significant portion of the population vaccinated to prevent the spread of disease, I learned about this concept called hotspots, and where if you have under vaccination in a particular school, if you will, or in a county, that the the infectious disease then can spread like wildfire. Have you, in your experience, have you seen that happen with an infectious disease? Uh, yes. I mean, very recently, we saw that with COVID. I mean, if you look in the South, we have infection hotspots where immunization rates against COVID sometimes are in the 40% range. The state of Missouri, immunization rates are so low, they can't find people to give their vaccines to. And as a result, that's how we really started to see uh, COVID start to spread like gangbusters, especially when the Delta variant emerged. Uh, unfortunately, it was the southern states that were the most hit. It was the states with the lowest vaccination rates. And likewise, you know, uh, we can go back to measles. In the state of Minnesota, there were some hot spots with respect to some uh, immigrant communities that had especially low vaccination rates. And as a result, um, measles started to spread am amongst uh, that a specific population. And so, uh, you know, obviously with recent memory, we can use what we learned about COVID and apply it to the other vaccines that we want to make sure that everybody uh, doesn't fall behind on. And I know one of the diseases that we talk a lot about in the fall is influenza. Can you, can you talk to us about maybe what you're anticipating will be different with influenza this year versus last year? So just like COVID, influenza is a virus that's a respiratory virus. It's spread by droplets. And so um, all the same precautions that we took a year ago to try to protect ourselves from COVID also protected us against influenza. And that's why we saw a significant drop in hospitalizations due to flu last year amongst adults and children, because people were wearing masks, people were distancing, and people were, were paying attention to hygiene. 
And now one year later, where people have sort of relaxed a little bit with their mask wearing, with their distancing, and with their hygiene, uh, as a physician that takes care of people not just in the outpatient setting but also in the hospital, I'm worried that hospital hospitalization rates are going to go up because of influenza. Uh, uh, well, not well because of influenza, RSV, COVID, all of them. Uh, and what we're trying to do is preserve as many hospital beds as possible for COVID patients who really need them. And if those bed spaces are occupied by people with influenza, RSV, other respiratory viruses, we're going to have a, a huge problem. No, I think it's so important for us to be reminded of the importance of the preventative care and the protection of vaccines. And I know you have some questions for Dr. Body. Uh, doctor, is there an element also of vaccine hesitancy just because people are misinformed about vaccines too? Uh, unfortunately, yes. Uh, this is not new, but with the advent of COVID, I feel like vaccine hesitancy has become more profound amongst a certain element of the population. Um, there were always people that were reluctant to get their children vaccinated because of misinformation, because of a fundamental misunderstanding of science. Um, uh, because of a false link to autism, whereas, in fact, the doctor in England who, who supposedly discovered the link with autism actually was found to have fabricated the data and lost his medical license. So we spent a lot of our careers debunking uh, misinformation, but now with COVID, it's on a whole new level. And so uh, uh, parents that are reluctant themselves to trust uh, the COVID vaccine, are, I've, I found, have also been even more reluctant to trust any other kind of vaccine for themselves or their children. Can you go back and kind of give us a little mini history lesson about how many diseases have been eradicated because of vaccines? Maybe that would help people who are concerned or hesitant. Well, um, we know that smallpox was eradicated uh, because of the vaccine. Polio has all but been eradicated. Measles has been all but eradicated. Uh, the chickenpox, you know, people think that chickenpox is a benign thing, but people used to die from varicella, and now we have a varicella vaccine. Uh, the rates of hospitalizations for meningitis because of things like hemophilus and uh, uh, meningococcal bacteria have also dropped precipitously because of the advent of vaccines. So um, uh, all of the vaccines that we give to children at ages two, four, and six months of age have done a, a, a huge job in, in, in reducing deaths because of, of vaccine-preventable diseases. You know, as you and Veronica were talking about your concerns that hospitalizations may now rise because people are getting back out and about, but yet they haven't gotten their children completely vaccinated, all I could think about was, these kids could come to the hospital with more than one disease. They could have COVID and they could have another infection that would be preventable if they would just get vaccinated. Oh, there's no doubt. Uh, and, you know, I have seen in my years uh, working as a pediatric hospitalist at Sparrow on the weekends here in Lansing, I've seen kids that have been hospitalized with more than one respiratory virus. Maybe they test positive for influenza A and they test positive for RSV. Um, and uh, you know, I myself have taken care of, of infants who have been hospitalized that have been COVID positive in the hospital. Uh -huh. uh, and unfortunately, we can't predict who's gonna get COVID and who's gonna get minimal symptoms and get better and who's gonna get COVID and who's gonna get really sick and die. There's no reliable way to predict that. And so as a result, we have to take all of the precautions that we know we need to do to protect all of us. 
And, you know, that's the scary thing about COVID, I think. You know, a lot of people will say, especially if they're vaccine hesitant, they'll say, well, you know, I'm extremely healthy. I would be just fine if if I get COVID. But in reality, we don't know that. That's just not accurate. Absolutely. There have been many young and healthy people that have died from COVID, especially since Delta came out. Now that over, you know, 95% of all the uh, cases of Delta in the United States. I mean, all the cases of COVID in the United States are from the Delta variant, uh, which is more contagious uh, and more virulent. Uh, younger, healthier people are getting sick from COVID and younger, healthier people are dying from COVID. We have a 28-year-old in Sparrow Hospital's ICU uh, on a ventilator from COVID. Uh, and so uh, nobody is immune. Unfortunately, it's not written on our foreheads. I wish it was, you know, who's going to get COVID and who's going to get really sick and who's going to get COVID and who's going to get better. If we knew that information, we'd be able to do a better job of stratifying the public and, and, and mitigating risk. But we don't know uh, uh, how that's going to happen. What about the people that have had COVID, actually gotten the infection, th- that are now walking around saying, well, I don't need the vaccine. I've had COVID. I've got plenty of antibodies. That applies to both adults, I think, and children. You hear a lot of that lately. Yeah, unfortunately, that's another sort of hot topic amongst the misinformation crowd, um, including some uh, prominent uh, politicians. Uh, However, what the data indicates is that, especially if you got sick a year ago from the alpha variant, um, that does not mean that you aren't capable of getting sick from the Delta variant or another variant moving forward. Um, the, the, the immunity that you get from a vaccine is more robust and more long lasting than the immunity that you get from having been infected from a previous variant. Um, and if you just look at the raw numbers, you know, if you look at these breakthrough infections, um, people that had COVID before are more likely to get a breakthrough infection than somebody who's gotten a vaccine. Uh, And so the most type, the most robust type of immunity that you can get actually is getting sick with COVID and then following that up three months later with a vaccine. That is the most robust protection. Uh, And so uh, we really do encourage even the people that got COVID to, to, to get vaccinated, to protect themselves and their families. And before we let you go, let's just go back to vaccine hesitancy overall. If you've got parents out there who are really concerned and they have questions. They've either seen something on the internet or they're talking to their friends and they have information and they don't want to get their children vaccinated for anything. How do you help them? What do you say? Well, so uh, as a public health person, the first thing that I recommend is go talk to the doctor that you trust. So go talk to your family physician like me or go talk to your pediatrician because regardless of what Uh, your political background is, you tend to trust your physician. Physicians have a high degree of trust amongst the public. So if you have questions or concerns about the safety of these things, then then make an appointment with your doctor and and go talk to him or her uh, and get their advice and get their opinion about the safety of all of these vaccines, not just COVID. Uh, And then individually as a physician, one-on-one, when I'm talking to my own patients, I usually just listen and I will ask, what concerns do you have? 
And then that will help guide the conversation. Because if they have concerns about autism, then I will pull up, even on my computer in real time, I will pull up the information about how that's been debunked. Here's the physician in England who falsified the data and lost his license and got in trouble. Uh, If they worry about side effects, I'll discuss the side effect data. uh, And I will talk about uh, how many of these diseases have been eradicated from the globe because of these vaccines. Uh, And uniformly, uh, the the risk of getting sick from these illnesses and the consequences of those illnesses is many, many times more dangerous than any potential risk from the vaccine itself. And Veronica McNally, I know that what Dr. Body just said is exactly the messaging of the Franny Strong Foundation. That's exactly right. Dr. Body, thank you so much for spending time with us today to talk about the importance of vaccines. You are listening to Why I Vaccinate. We'll be back right after these messages. listening to Why I Vaccinate, and our guest now is Dr. Emily Martin. Dr. Martin is Associate Professor of Epidemiology with the University of Michigan School of Public Health. Welcome to the show, Dr. Martin. Thank you for having me. What's an epidemiologist? What exactly do you do? Well, I have to say, this is the era where people know what epidemiologists do. No one ever knew what I did before. But what we do is measure disease. We watch for patterns. We watch for changes. We look for unusual things to happen. But we also spend a lot of time characterizing what makes people sick and what kind of actions they can take to make themselves healthier. You guys are kind of like rock stars right now because everybody's talking about disease and infection with COVID. But there's another important disease infection that's taking place at this time of year. And Veronica McNally is going to take it from here and talk about the flu with you. Doctor, thank you for joining us to talk about the flu. I think it'd be helpful to start out and make sure that parents understand what we mean when we say the flu. Sometimes I think people think it's a stomach flu and and you you don't think it's just the stomach flu, right? Right, right. There's, um, you know, a lot of people use the word flu to mean the stomach flu. Sometimes people use the word flu to mean all sorts of cold and flu symptoms. You know, we know that there are 20 or more viruses that can cause respiratory symptoms, but the one that we're going to talk about today is influenza, which is a certain type of virus um, that we have a very specific vaccine for. And Right now is the time that people should be getting that vaccine for influenza. And what what do you want people to know about this vaccine? What can they what can they expect to happen when they get the vaccine? Absolutely. So you're right that now is the time to vaccinate, particularly for kids. So what parents of children can expect to happen, if you have a younger kid, especially if it's their first time being vaccinated for flu, they might need two shots at the recommendation of your pediatrician. So it takes some time. So now October is really what we focus on for vaccine month for that reason. Once you get the vaccine, the side effects are very similar to other vaccines, maybe a little bit of arm soreness maybe a little bit of fatigue in kids, maybe a little bit of crankiness, and that'll resolve very quickly. Um, and then you you kind of go into the, the rest of the flu season with your full protection two weeks after receiving the vaccine. And we haven't heard a lot about, um, about flu cases yet. Should that in any way factor into 
the decision to get a vaccine or not right now? So you're right that we haven't had flu cases yet this season. In fact, we had almost no flu cases last season. So this tells us two things. First of all, now is the time to get vaccinated because you want to get vaccinated and give your body the time to build that protection before flu gets here. So now is a good time to do this. Don't wait until cases start. Um, the other thing that it tells us, though, is in a typical flu season, our body has the opportunity to get introduced to the virus and maybe build some levels of immunity in our own systems. And that didn't happen last year because we didn't have any flu around. So experts are concerned that we might have a particularly fierce flu season this year. So that makes vaccination now during the month of October even more important. And what does it mean, fierce flu season? So if someone can, if someone is infected with influenza, are the symptoms mild or can the symptoms be really severe and even fatal? So we're concerned that rates will be higher than we normally would have in, in a regular year. That's the big worry. But then you're right among those people that do get infected, some of them can become very sick. You know, just speaking just specifically about the kid data, we see uh, thousands of kids end up in the hospital in a normal year for influenza. Sometimes more than 25,000 kids in the U.S. will end up hospitalized. Uh, in our worst years, we've even had hundreds of kids, unfortunately, die from the flu. So this is a disease that can be very serious, particularly in the younger and the older individuals. What do you tell a parent who says, I, I just don't feel comfortable about vaccinating against flu? I vaccinate my kids for all the other infectious diseases they can come in contact with, but I just won't do it for the flu vaccine. You know, I, I always encourage people to make decisions in partnership with their pediatrician. Your pediatrician is going to be one of your best resources for knowing your child and for information. But what I also, uh, what also gives me a lot of confidence in the flu vaccine is the fact that we've been using the flu vaccine since the 1940s in the United States. And we've been using the flu vaccine in kids for decades. So we have an incredible amount of experience in how to dose the vaccine and how to use the vaccine well. And, and we've been able to see the data on how well it works in terms of reducing illnesses in kids by 50%, 60% or more in many years. And one of the things I think parents are hearing about is this phrase quadrivalent. Can you talk about what that means as it relates to the vaccine? Absolutely. So the, um, the, the flu vaccine has the challenge of covering a virus that shifts and changes every year. And we don't always know what the shifts and changes are going to be until they actually happen. I guess if you could kind of the side of my office where you, you can quite uh, where I am now. Um, we've actually got a, a poll where we try to guess what's going to happen based on what we're seeing around the world for the viruses. And the reason I bring that up is because there's that level of uncertainty about which specific flu virus is going to be around. We try to put multiple flu viruses in the vaccine so that we cover all of our bases. And so we put two A viruses and two B viruses in there so that we're, we're covered no matter which of those four pop up in our communities. And Anne is a grandmother to a baby, and I know that she has some questions for you. So I'm going to have Anne talk to you too. So 
Can teeny tiny newborn infants get a flu vaccine, Dr. Martin? So we start vaccinating infants at six months of age. And one of the reasons that we have that age cutoff is because um, infants receive antibodies from their mothers. And so we want to make sure that the infants are, are ready to make their own antibodies independently. And that starts at about six months. So one of the things that we do to protect the smallest infants is promote vaccination of pregnant women. So vaccination in pregnancy, we know is safe and we know that it works well and that goes a long way to provide further protection to the infant once the baby is born. And what other tips do you have other than getting the vaccine on top of getting the vaccine to help prevent the flu for all of us? So I think we've learned a lot over the last year about things that prevent the flu because we didn't have any flu last year. And so some of the things that we've learned, we can carry forward. So stay home when you're sick. Um, limit your interaction with the vulnerable people in your life when you've got symptoms because it could be the flu and you don't want to infect somebody else. Uh, you know, and if you've got situations where you need to go out and you're symptomatic, we've also learned a lot about how well masking works to prevent transmission. And so we can take some of these lessons forward uh, in flu season, just like we do with COVID. Dr. Emily Martin, Associate Professor of Epidemiology with the University of Michigan School of Public Health. Thank you for your time today and thank you for the great advice, the great help with regard to the flu. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And you've been listening to Why I Vaccinate, presented by the Franny Strong Foundation and the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. On behalf of my co-host, Veronica McNally, I'm Ann Thomas, and we hope you have a great day.